0: Hey there. It's PNN. I'm Brooke Hines. It's Sunday, January 3, 2021. Tonight. Oh my God. So wait a minute. Wait a minute. It's a new year. It's a whole new year. Um, It's taken me three days to recover from fireworks in the neighborhood. We have two small dogs, only one of which has a, a a reaction to explosions. The other one is just like, uh, whatever. But one of them, uh, was, uh, pretty much having a panic attack for about eight hours straight. And it's taken us pretty much until today to recover from that as a family. It was, it was really, really stressful. Um, there is all kinds of things that happen with the beginning of the new year. and um, one of them that is uh, that happened today is we ushered in uh, a an old new speaker of the House of Representatives so we'll be talking about that tonight. Uh, karik Krishnayer will join us to help understand the vote for speaker today and uh, and what a speaker does uh, i'm I'm interested to hear uh, his perspective as a as, as a history nerd uh, as to what what is the speaker's position actually do? What is its importance politically? And what are the dynamics? And before he'll come on at 730. And before that, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the brouhaha, all of the, the, the stuff leading into this uh, very insider politics election, uh, because there was the whole force the vote movement Um, Prior to this, but I think it's uh, Important to understand that Force the Vote uh, Is a larger Movement than just Having to do with Nancy Pelosi But we're going to get to that in a second Um, Also, Bean Dad If you were on Twitter today, you already Know about Bean Dad, and if you weren't on Twitter today, then you still need To know about Bean Dad Because um, this could happen To you people You don't want to be a wannabe edgelord. And being dad is the teachable moment. Being dad was somebody who thought he was giving a, te- a teachable moment on uh, something completely unrelated, but it actually turned out to be a teachable moment about being dad. We will get to that. That's the tease. Uh, Janine Moloff tonight, uh, what the Justice Report resumes her Not Dying for Wall Street series with an analysis on Operation Warp Speed, which is uh, our uh, effort to distribute COVID-19 vaccine. Now, according to best estimates, it's going to take 10 years to adequately vaccinate the American public. And you know why that is, because we don't have Medicare for all. We don't have a functioning healthcare system, so we don't have the means to get vaccinations out to the people. Uh, so she's got a, she's got that. And she also has a few choice words for Senator Josh Hawley. Um, remember, Janine Moloff is not in Florida. She's in Missouri. So this is her, uh, one of her senators. So she's got, she's got very specific um, thoughts about that. And I cannot wait to hear them. Um, We will be right back with the beat. Okay. Oh, my God. Uh, so, the beat. What's going on this week? Uh, this has been a big week for a lot of things, but I want to start out with what's going on in Virginia. Yeah, I know. We're, we're in Florida, and we talk about Florida stuff a lot, but what's going on in Virginia right now is super important, and uh, everybody who considers themselves a progressive needs to know that uh, the always amazing... Lee Carter is running for governor of Virginia. Now Lee Carter was uh elected to the Virginia State Legislature as a socialist and that was historic and now he's running for governor and that's even more historic. And uh, uh the, the Virginia race is um considered a bellwether. I've got a um story here from the News Tribune, Florida's, or sorry, Virginia's governor's race in high gear. Um, a broad field of candidates are vying for the governor's seat in Virginia as the marquee political contest of 2021 gets into full swing. Now, what's been going on in Virginia uh, politically is what makes this race so interesting. And the Virginia race is always considered somewhat of a marquee for the rest of the country. We saw uh, the Virginia governor's race uh, indicate political leanings during the Obama administration and during Trump's administration. And according to this article, uh, it looks like 2021 is shaping up to be very similar. Now, I've already cast my... Uh, my lot with Lee Carter. I've, I, I'm a supporter. I, I threw him some money. I'm, I'm, I'm a hundred percent. This is a good guy, and it, I'm really glad that he's running. And in just 48 hours, he raised more than seventy thousand dollars. Uh, after announcing, so that's that's pretty amazing. This is somebody who ran for state ledge pretty much with just with the. Um, uh, grit and determination Of his local Chapter of DSA Democratic Socialists of America Who knocked a gajillion doors And got him elected And since he's been in office He's done some amazing things He uh, he was able to cap The uh, th- th- This one just blows my mind He was able to cap the out of pocket cost For Virginians for insulin at um I forget the amount but it was an affordable amount as opposed to uh what uh, actually people have to pay for insulin in other states. So that was a, a really big win and I remember seeing that story right before he announced. And so uh this this piece from the News Tribune which I'll put in the show notes I think, really gives a flavor of why this race is so important, aside from Lee Carter. Uh, Virginia has traditionally elected business-friendly moderates of both parties to be its chief executive, but the depth of the 2021 field reflects the state's changing political dynamics and the unsettled mood among Republicans and Democrats. The field of announced and likely candidates in the race is more diverse than any time in modern history. Now, in addition to my beloved, Lee Carter. Uh, We have uh, two black lawmakers uh, trying to become the first African-American woman elected governor in the country's history. Uh, You've got the progressive wing of Virginia's Democratic Party, which didn't even exist until a few years ago, uh, looking to cement gains it had made in recent elections. And you get Terry McAuliffe representing the out-of-touch millionaire uh, wing of the party, he wants to run for this, and uh, you might be asking, um, well, what happened to uh, to the um, uh, Northam? You know, the guy that was just elected as governor of Virginia. Well, little known fact, uh, the uh, Virginia Constitution is uh, uh, prescribes that you can't run for consecutive terms in the governor's office. You can only be a one a one hit wonder in Virginia with regard to the um, governor's mansion. I wonder what the history is there. I'm sure something happened to make them say, oh, wow, we only need one guy or or one one term for the people who are are in office. Something bad had to have happened. Uh, It might have been the guy who was um, uh, um, selling influence and getting expensive watches and stuff right before Northam got into office. So uh we got Terry McAuliffe. We got Jennifer Carol Foy, who recently resigned as a state delegate. Um, we've got state senator Jenna, Jennifer McClellan, a soft spoken pragmatist who often has a hand in high profile legislation and is well liked by many Democrats and more he's a, and is a more moderate alternative to McAuliffe. Now the, Terry McAuliffe, okay. The, um, the uh, representative of the out-of-touch millionaire wing of the party is – is d- d- nobody in their right mind thinks that Terry McAuliffe is any kind of progressive or left-wing person. Um, Terry McAuliffe was a a clinton bundler he was one of the the um people who raised the most money for hillary clinton in 2016 and he's establishment through and through like to to the bones that is who terry McAuliffe, M- McAuliffe is um so lee carter is the uh is the challenge from the left um and uh, he is going up against all of that money. He's going up against all of that power and all of the uh, respectability, you know, like all of the the uh, political soft power that exists within the party. Uh, this, this is, um, I'm sure, giving people heartburn in the party in Virginia. But you know what? They're just going to have to get used to it because the left is not going away. The left is going, um, is inspiring people and uh, things are happening so this is this is what you get and i want to give you if i can find it i'm going to give you the url oops uh, i can't find it now i'm going to put this in the show notes i'm going to give you the um URL for Lee Carter's uh, um, campaign so that you can check that out. And uh, we'll go from there. Now, uh, be sure to um, check out Lee's campaign page. Be sure to uh, donate if you can. And... um, Pay attention to this guy because he's young and he really does seem to be a new face of the left in this country. I mean, there's not, you know, there, there's not too many people who can say that they've been elected to office Uh, With the support of DSA, or with the support of uh, um, you know being under the umbrella of uh, of a socialist party, and that's exactly what what Lee Carter did. So um, I think that I think that his run is historic, and I think that we're going to be having a lot more conversation about uh, what it means, what it means to uh, to be a socialist and um in today's uh in today's political spectrum and uh and what that means I think by and large as we go forward. Now Lee Carter isn't that aberrant either when you think that uh when you realize that you know that the squad was elected and uh and elected with a lot of help from DSA and um elected as openly saying look we 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 see the very valid critique of capitalism. we see how these problems are rooted in um in in material conditions, and that's what we want to uh address. That's what the squad is um got into office. that's how they were elected and uh and um they have not had it easy." And we're going to get to a little bit of that as we talk about the force the vote issue. Now, um, Lee Carter has a a landing page to donate to his campaign. And if you go to uh, ActBlue, if you have an ActBlue account or if you go to ActBlue, it's actblue.com backslash donate backslash Carter for F-O-R governor. Carter for governor, and I'll I'll put that link down in the show notes. And um, apologies for not having that URL just handy. Um, all right, moving on. I'll tell you what, force the vote has worn everyone out this week. Force the vote. If you're not familiar with uh, with what's been going on uh, with um, with this particular. Controversy, I guess you could call it, um, then you probably haven't been on Twitter because this is this has largely been a a, a Twitter YouTube kind of back and forth you've got um, a number of uh, uh, media personalities, such as uh, Justin Jackson, who is a, a football player with the uh, chargers you've got uh, Lee camp who is on uh, RT has a great show on there that, that you should check out called redacted tonight. You've got um, um, Savage joy who has her own show um, and has been telling this harrowing story of how she lost her eyesight and is now legally blind uh, and happened overnight and how much that is costing her and how, you know, she, she can't meet the needs. She can't meet her needs in our healthcare environment. So she's she's spoken up along with all these other folks. Uh, Brianna Joy Gray has spoken up, and so has Jimmy Dore uh, on the Jimmy Dore show, saying, "Hey, look, we need a floor vote on Medicare for all, or else we're going to withhold our votes on Nancy Pelosi for Speaker." That was forced to vote. Very simple um, concept there. Jimmy Dore put it out uh, around the beginning of December, and you know it was something that, that that he said, "Hey, you know, look, we don't we don't have to sit back and and wait for uh, Congress, members of Congress, or electeds to throw us, you know, scraps from the table." We have to be demanding what it is that we want. Power concedes nothing without a demand, right? And, and he says, look, this is, th- this is what we got to do. Nancy Pelosi wants votes and needs votes to be the Speaker of the House again. And in order to get those votes, we need to get a floor vote on Medicare for All. And we don't care if it wins or loses. Same way the Republican Party didn't actually care uh, the uh, 2000 times they voted to defund and eliminate the ACA. They did it and they did it and they did it and they did it. And what that did was it showed their base that their representatives had their back and they didn't care that they were going to lose every single damn time because it kept reinforcing their brand. It kept moving the Overton window so that, uh, so that the news and, and all of the talking heads and our entire uh, ecosystem of, of the way that things are talked about in this country was reflecting their point of view. And, ref- and showing that they were coming in force and that they weren't playing around and that, uh, and that if you didn't watch out, they were eventually going to get enough votes to overturn it, so on and so forth. You know, that's playing politics, and that's playing the kind of politics that reinforces your relationship with your voters. And that is way different than the way the Democrats treat their voters. The Democrats treat their voters like, like we don't exist you know we're 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 treated like like abused spouses actually you know I was going to say something like we're treated like less than dirt but you know um we we do have a topsoil problem and uh, and people tend to value topsoil and dirt in this country because uh, um it's important and Definitely democratic voters are treated worse than dirt. We are treated like the abused spouse uh, where um, we're denigrated. Our issues are den- denigrated. We are dismissed. Uh, our lives are at stake and we are laughed off time and time again. And, and, and the party just does not party leadership, you know, Party elites, as I like to say, uh, don't want anything to do with the issues that animate the base. And when I say animate the base, that's actually uh, life and death stuff. So Medicare is life and death stuff. Whether or not there is a Green New Deal is life and death stuff for um, you know, people who intend to live on this planet um, in the next 50 years and 100 years yeah in other words, our children and grandchildren and their children. if there's gonna be a planet uh for for anyone's uh legacy, then we've got to do something about climate change now we all know this, you know, but what stands in the way, and this is why I think a uh um, a uh oh. Brain just locked up Just like vapor lock I hate that um, So so with force the vote You had a really interesting um, Clash of ideas Like really quick This happened over Like just the last week You had these voices coming out And they're saying Hey look we need to We need to force this vote And we want to get Medicare for all on the floor And then you had this backlash of um literally a lot of leadership from DSA, who I just mentioned having to do with Lee um Lee Carter. And uh and um people in the party. So and what I think kind of was going on there is that you had um party leadership reaching out to some of the, the big big nugs in DSA and getting them to push back so that there were people who were uh, relative to the Medicare for all fight actually doing that pushback. Now we're going to talk to Carter Krishnire about the realities of the speaker's race. This is separate from that. This is, you know, voters trying to get what voters want. And it's really not the job of voters to care or even know about how things work on Capitol Hill to know, you know, what goes on in, in, in rules negotiations. So for instance, all of this pressure that was just exerted on Nancy Pelosi and, and the, and the squad asking them to withhold their votes, they were able to extract one small concession uh, at least out of Nancy Pelosi. And that is to get a rules change to, um, to be able to suspend the pay go rule. You know, that rule was Nancy Pelosi saying, you know, having PTSD from way back in the Reagan administration, 40 freaking years ago, and <laughs> saying that, you know, uh, we have to be super careful about not spending any money. We don't want to spend any money that isn't coming back in in terms of other budget cuts or. Raising taxes that's pay go So pay as you go and this was an idea that, that became popular 40 years Ago during the Reagan administration And and it was Horrific that Nancy Pelosi it, it, Not being asked to do this Just instituted this stupid Pay go rule out of nowhere Nobody wanted this right And so what they've done In this rule change is is Say that we can suspend paygo under uh, certain circumstances and they've tied it to um uh to exempt the budgetary effects of measures to prevent, prepare for, or respond to economic or public health consequences resulting from COVID-19 pandemic. And number two, exempt the budgetary effects of measures to prevent, prepare for, or respond to economic environmental or public health consequences resulting from climate change. So if it has to do with climate change, if it has to do with climate, if it has to do with the pandemic, then they can uh, suspend PAYGO. That's what they can su- suspend Pago for, but it's it's a call on the floor. It is not a a, a broad lifting of PAYGO. It's not like Pago went away. Pago's still there. Uh, it, it can only be applied to these uh, particular particular pieces here, and so what happened today is. There was a vote for the Speaker of the House, and Nancy Pelosi won by the skin of her teeth. She barely won that vote. Uh, five members of Congress w- uh, did not vote for her. And so it was uh, with numbers that close. She she was probably sweating bullets because even if you were behind the scenes and you had all of those votes figured out and everybody knew how it was all going to go down or yada, 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 you know, that, that student government association way that things go down, you know, where it's like hippity habbity hip and, you know, you, you gavel it out and it's done, you know, if you were... Had anything to do with SGA in high school Or college you might know that that's how Shit goes down uh, That's exactly how they behave in Congress You know it's a lot of Theater uh, for For stuff that has already Been figured out um, And uh, I've actually I've got a clip here I want to play this because I, I, I think that this is it, it is Very relevant this is was um, so, like Program. Glenn Greenwald talking about uh, how these kind of um, votes go down, and 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 uh, how he, as a young blogger, would get caught up in this stuff. So it's it, it's really short, and I want to play this because I think it's super important.
1: I said bloggers who always thought, oh, they just need more spine. Exactly. They really want to do exactly good things, him. but they're just afraid. You know that whole like Daily goes like mythology for children and i remember what what they used to do is you know there'd be like some bill and i would get really excited it would be like to ban um or to guarantee habeas corpus for war on terror suspects so they get at least one crack at a court before they're like thrown into prison for three decades and this is something the democrats are campaigning on and we're denouncing and every single time there'd be a bill like that it would always fail by two or three votes because of democratic affections but they would always make sure that the defections rotated so you could never focus on anyone who is terrible they kept just rotating it so it was like that kind of game when you're play with a kid with you have that hammer and the things pop up and you have to smash them but you can never actually win because they just keep popping up whackable. Um, whackable. and I call it villain rotation that's you know yeah it's rotation, yeah they're experts at that the Democrats are expert at denying their voters what they pretend they want to give them right. and then pretending that they're really upset by it
0: so you can hear so that that was Glenn Greenwald from his uh home in uh Brazil. You can hear the birds in the background, and you know he was saying that that um we're fools we're he's basically saying we're fools for getting caught up in 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 these votes and thinking that that there's a chance of them going one way or the other because generally they've got them figured out, but I think. That with a vote, like, like what was going on today, I, I tell you, there was a moment. Nancy Pelosi was sweating bullets there for a moment. Honest to God, she had to be. Because even if you had those votes figured out ahead of time, all, all, it only took one or two people to totally mess it up. It only took one or two people to tip it over to the vote going for a Republican who would be Speaker of the House. And I am going to ask Carteriff Krishnayer when he calls in. I want to ask him if there's ever been a um a Speaker of the House who was elected from the other party uh, uh, you know has that ever happened in in history because I can't remember uh an, an episode when when that was the case when when that happened now real quick uh I think the very best spokesperson for on on this issue of force the vote was Brianna Joy Gray and Brianna Joy Gray, Lee Camp and um, um, Savage Joy and a few other folks did a protest in D.C. yesterday and continued it on today, had some speakers and, you know, did uh, did a lot of outreach on on social media using this. It was uh, there was some brilliant things said, but I want to I want to focus on I'm going to focus on this one piece that. Brianna did. Let me see if I can bring this up in a in a different way. I can't believe all of the pushback, by the way, on uh, on this um, force the vote thing, because essentially what you have here are people doing what people need to do as voters to make sure that that their voices are heard. So um, here's Brianna Joy Gray. She's talking about how this is about accountability. This is about accountability all right, that we've already done the organizing, and now is the time to make sure that things happen. That's called accountability.
2: Fundamentally in this country. The reason that we don't have Medicare for all is because the people in leadership aren't willing to say who is responsible for us not having Medicare for all. 88% of Democrats support this policy, and nearly 50% of Republicans do as well. And yet barely 50% of House Democratic memberships supports Medicare for all. That gulf is not there because the people don't want it. It's because no one is holding leadership accountable to their constituents. We have a media apparatus that's completely unwilling to play. We have a, liberal, a lefty media a- apparatus that's largely silent on this issue as well. Right. And when we do have opportunities, no one is willing to name names and call out members of Congress, including people who are civil rights heroes
3: right? You know? Right. Including
2: people like Jim Clyburn, who happens to take more money from the pharmaceutical industry than yeah. anybody else in Congress. Right. We can't be afraid to say these kinds yeah. of things. Yeah. Yeah. At the end of the day, without accountability, we're not going to make any progress in this yeah. area. Yeah. And it's going to be uncomfortable, and there are going to be people that we all have liked and supported and admired and fought for and donated to and marched for that are going to be uncomfortable, that are going to be targets of this kind of criticism,
3: as they should be.
2: They took this job because they wanted to be public servants, not because they wanted to be celebrity public figures. And it's going to be hard because they are beloved, and you are going to be vilified and called every name in the book. You're going to be birdie bro to death. But here's the thing. We've been through before. (laughs) We're battle-tested and thick skinned. And most importantly, we know we all have each other's back. And that sense of solidarity is the most important and precious thing to me right now. And i got to say, just on a personal note, it has meant so much to me to know that there is so much real grassroots support for all of these issues that is bigger and bolder and stronger than any of the commitment that was given to any singular candidate or, or, or political
0: campaign. All right. That was Brianna Joy Gray. And I just I just really, you know, pretty much everything she says is pretty amazing. But I, I thought that that was a really good summation of what was going on with Force the Vote. And um, we're going to leave that here for the moment. And I'm going to be right back with Karthik Krishnayer. So hold on. All right, we should have Carter Krishnayer on the line. Are
4: you there? I am. Hey. How are you? Happy New Year.
0: Happy New Year to you. Uh, it's really good to talk to you. I you know, this thing that that happened today with with Nancy Pelosi uh, uh being elected a speaker, people were watching this like the Super Bowl. I've I've never seen so much attention on the vote for the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and so I wanted to bring you on to to talk about what the significance is of the Speaker of the House and this particular kind of election, because I was not seeing very much clear understanding in in out there amongst activists. To, you know people don't understand really what what this is about so so tell us what first of all has first of all, I got to ask you this: has the Speaker of the House ever been of the party that hasn't been in power so has someone ever lost the election for Speaker of the house?
4: Uh, no, although it's almost happened a, a few times. I mean, I think the last time I remember a speaker vote getting so much attention was in, in, in uh, January of 97 when Newt Gingrich was uh, w- was uh, in Essex hot water. And what had happened was that there were a significant number of Republicans who either were, were hesitating to vote for him or did not vote for him. And so what you had was, um, it, it was led by Jim Leach who later, who was a moderate Republican who later ended up serving in the Obama administration, right? Endorsing Obama, serving the Obama administration. I think this time was one of the uh, former uh, former members of Congress that endorsed Joe Biden that were Republicans. But he was the chairman of the Banking Committee, so he was pretty prominent. And he had actually defended Newt Gingrich against the char- ethics charges uh, when the Democrats first took over Congress. But um, in that uh, stage, I remember I think eleven or twelve Republicans breaking ranks and voting for. Uh, either voting present or voting for uh, various uh, um, other, uh, you know, uh, figures. You know, in fact, uh, one voted for Bob Michael, who who was a former member of the House, former Republican leader. Uh, But, no, it hasn't happened. It did happen in the California Assembly significantly enough. uh, When Willie Brown, who was the Speaker of the House, when the Democrats were the majority, they fell into the minority and he got uh, a Republican member, to vote for him and uh, gave her uh, committee assignments. But we have seen um, here in the Florida legislature, there significantly was in, in the Florida Senate, a coup that, that happened in uh, in 1986 at the organizational session where the uh, Republicans banded with the conservative Democrats and um, ousted the, the, the president-designee, who was Ken Jenny, who was a liberal Democrat from Broward County and put in a, very conservative uh, Democrat, uh, John Vogt from, Vogt from John uh, an actor. John Vogt from uh, Coco, also a conservative, from Coco, and he made all the Republicans committee chairs. So there is precedent in like state legislatures, but not in the Congress, not in the U.S. House. Then again, we haven't had a U.S. House majority that's been this slender. I don't think ever. Maybe, uh, uh, I mean, I, I, there's been Senate majorities. There was a, a Senate, um, Senate majority that was that was one seat at at one point, but that that's I don't think in the House it's ever been this narrow that I can recall.
0: Yeah, and I think that that's going to set up for a, an interesting uh, session uh, of Congress, which leads right into what does the Speaker of the House do? Because it's it it's more than just holding the gavel. There's all kinds of power that the Speaker has that is just aside from you know presiding over, what is what does it mean? What does she do?
4: Yeah, so I think that there's been some confusion. And I blame the media for this. The media has, for however many years now, coupled the Senate majority leader together with the Speaker of the House or the Senate minority leader uh, together in the House. We always hear Pelosi and Schumer. We always heard, uh, back in the day, uh, Boehner and McConnell, right? I mean, Gingrich and Dole, I remember that when Clinton was president, and then Gingrich and Locke, right? But the, the actual Senate majority leader, um, the, the position was a throwaway position, really, until Lyndon Johnson became majority leader and understood how to use the leverage of power. And that's why I think he arrogantly thought uh, when he accepted against the advice of the people around him, being uh, JFK's running mate in 1960, that power is where power goes, right? We, we know he, he used that, that quote because he thought, I made the Senate Majority Leader's position, which was a throwaway position, um, powerful. But in reality, the Senate Majority Leader, I guess, is important now because they have kind of the the, the bully pulpit on television. Um, they uh, they 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 control committee assignments, etc. But they do not have the power that the Speaker of the House has in, in the House. So that the Speaker of the House in the House uh, uh, controls committee assignments controls the floor of legislation, you can manipulate the rules of the House. And so so basically, I'll say this. You stack the rules committee in the House. Every piece of legislation that comes to the House floor has to come through not only the committees that, that it go through to go to the floor, like in the Senate, but also gets a rule attached to it in the rules committee of the House, which the Speaker of the House will, will, will stack with loyalists, um, and the Democrats will have a not, you know, Actually, the way that, that it works, the Democrats' majority on the uh, Rules Committee will be as big in raw numbers as it is in the in the House because uh, they, they kept a 9-4 uh, majority on that committee to make sure they can never lose a vote on that committee. Effectively, whatever the Speaker wants, she gets, or he when it's been a he, because they stack that committee. You don't have that process in the Senate. And then you have a situation where in the Senate, one member we've seen, can put holds on things. You have a filibuster. You have all these other things. The rule, every piece of legislation in the House comes to the floor with a rule. The rule, as I said, comes through the Rules Committee. And the Rules Committee is controlled effectively by the Speaker. So she is effectively controlling the rule that brings legislation to the floor, which means all the amendments she controls. Right, that rules committee says this amendment's in order, this amendment's out of order. Okay, the Republicans are going to offer a substitute amendment. Maybe we'll allow them to to offer the amendment on the floor. Maybe we won't. It's all in that rule. Oh, we can all, you can limit debate to only ten minutes on certain things. All of this stuff is controlled by the Speaker of the House. In the in that Senate, Schumer or it's actually McConnell now does not have control over all of. All those sorts of things I just talked about, those procedural things I talked about. So this this kind of false equivalency that's been created by the media that somehow McConnell is as powerful as Pelosi is nonsense, right? Maybe he has better control of his caucus. You could argue that, right? Mm. But in mm. terms of institutional power, he doesn't have it, and nor would any Senate majority leader. So uh, a real, real quick summary. The rules include what amendments can be offered to, to, to the legislation, the the, the the debate is timed. it's everything you know there'll be uh an hour given to both sides in this in, in a rule it will be you' gonna uh, no speaker can uh, go for more than three minutes and etc et cetera et cetera those sorts of things it's it's scripted down to a T and um effectively this is why you've seen time and again the vote on the rule so because then that rule has to go to the house floor right? Um, the vote on that rule ends up becoming a fait accompli to a passage of legislation. The only exceptions we've seen to this is when the Democrats in mass did go with their leadership and vote for the Clinton budget coming to the floor in 1993 and, and Obamacare coming to the floor in 2009. And then there were mass defections when the final vote came. In both, in both cases, they both passed by one vote, right, um, 217 to 216 or 218 to 217. Uh, that, that's the only exception to this. Generally, when, when something, it, the rule passes, the, the legislation is going to pass and the minority is going to be frustrated. It might work a little differently this session because of how narrow the margin is. I mean, I know um, what ended up happening, in, and I think I mentioned this last time I was on your show, or you, or maybe you and I talked about it privately. What happened in 1981 was that um, the Democrats still had a majority in the House. The Republicans had taken the Senate. Carter had been defeated for re-election, and um, there were all of these – I mean, I think the closest thing we've had to this this phenomena of, of a political party being in lockstep with uh, its leader, uh, like we have with Trump now with the Republicans, was in 1981 and 1982 with Reagan. So the Republicans were in lockstep. They had increased numbers in the House. They weren't quite at 214 or 213, whatever they're in at now. They were at, like, 190. Or 195, but when combined with conservative Democrats and Democrats who were representing districts where Reagan had beaten Carter by a big margin and were scared for re-election, um, the Democrats brought a rule to the floor. Uh, Tip O'Neill and, and uh, his Budget Chairman Jim Jones brought a rule to the to the floor um, that allowed a Republican substitute amendment. And the substitute amended ended up replacing, with the help of conservative Democrats, ended up replacing the House budget. And Reagan got his budget through the House, even though Tip O'Neill wasn't going to schedule a vote on Reagan's budget in the House uh, and wow. his tax cuts, right? So this, uh, so that, it can happen. So I'm sure McCarthy, oh, of course, McCarthy's not going to have a Republican president, but I'm sure he's going to be trying to maneuver that way. But generally, it doesn't happen. Um, which is why the House ends up being a much more partisan institution than the Senate, uh, just by nature of, of of the rules. You have to be on the side of the Speaker to get anywhere. Whereas and that's in the Senate, by you can be, I think, Yeah, that's by design. I think in the Senate there's probably more power in being a moderate, right, somewhere in the middle making deals mm-hmm. with the other party than there is in being uh, a party loyalist, whereas in the House it is by design. You are a... Uh, um, uh, you, you are subservient to the Speaker. And that is uh, that goes back to the Democrats during the New Deal era. And uh, they didn't succeed in court packing, obviously. That was one thing FDR wanted. And he had all kinds of problems with the Senate, which is why he got involved in a bunch of Democratic primaries trying to take out conservative Democrats in primaries and lost, uh, as I think a lot of the listeners might know, in 1938. The one place they were successful was with the Speaker, Sam Rayburn, they basically concocted these rules where they could never lose a vote, and they never lost a vote. That's why there were, I, I mean, we, if you study the history of civil rights and anti-lynching bills and all this stuff, there were you know, literally dozens of civil rights bills and anti-lynching bills and all these sorts of things that passed the House and got killed in the Senate through the years. It was it was impossible for the leadership to not to be defeated, which is why... Um, I know we want to move on to this subject, but um, I think there was a little naivety today with, a, with, with some folks not understanding why those who were critical of Pelosi, you and I would be in that category too, why we would not be as critical, or at least in my case, not be as critical of AOC and and uh, Ilan Omar and others voting for Pelosi for speaker. I mean, it's almost like, okay, this is where you have to pick your flanks, because if you do vote against her, and she loses, that's it for you, probably, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we can talk a little bit about that as well.
0: Yeah, I think that there's a... So, so like, for me, I think that there is a soft power thing, dynamic, that, that was going on in the push from the voter side. And there's definitely... I mean, I wouldn't even call it naivete. I would just say that people don't understand the, the it's ignorance. They don't understand uh, how how that the house is, is and what it fun what its function is. Because like Nancy Pelosi or the Speaker of the House is third in line in succession. Uh, it, it you know should something happen to the president and the vice president, that's for a reason. You know that um, senators yeah. had. Previously been appointed, so they weren't representational. It wasn't. It wasn't the same kind of representation as uh, members of the House of Representatives. Like representatives represent, and so that's part of where the the power comes from. And Nancy Pelosi is is um she's a real interesting. I think she's she's an interesting person. To like not somebody i'd like to hang out with but um but it, 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 interesting in terms of the way that she holds power and wields power so so my take on Nancy Pelosi has been and and i'm not a huge fan is that uh even if there are uh, uh political disagreements like you know. You know whether someone's too far to the left or too far to the right or whatever. I've seen Nancy Pelosi as somebody who puts personal relationships above um, uh, those those kind of political leanings. Like I think, yeah, I I think that she just, I think she just hates the squad. I mean, I really think she just hates them. Yeah. But, she,
4: but this, is, this is where the squad may have made a smart tactical decision because the thing that, we, that I noticed about Pelosi is that her, her, her relationships are based on personality. They're not based on ideology or any sort of deep um, uh, political connection. You know, I, I, she, she tried to take Steny Hoyer out as majority leader uh, early on in her tenure. I, I guess they patched things up, right? I mean, I, I, it's 14 years since then, but um, uh, more... 14 years, sorry. But, that, you know, she, she aligned herself with a conservative Democrat and John Murtha, far to the right of of of, uh, of Hoyer, who so I don't think is exactly a liberal, but, you know, who um, so I think is a pretty centrist Democrat. But because she wanted to take him out and she had had some personal relationship with Murtha, she's done it with people on the left, too. She had some personal relationships with people on the left, not, not necessarily the squad. Um, I've seen it with Debbie Wasserman Schultz here in... Uh, in South Florida, right, who, who, of course, was the chair of the DNC, the controversial chair of the DNC, even though they are, in theory, aligned within the Democratic establishment, Pelosi has done everything she can to impede Wasserman Schultz's path. And that's why I think DWS ended up going the party path, right, because her, mm-hmm. her, her path has continuously been blocked in the House just because she doesn't get along well with Nancy Pelosi. And now we even saw it more recently, just in the last few weeks, where Pelosi blocked. Wasserman Schultz from getting on the appropriations committee, which I'm not a Wasserman Schultz fan, you know that, Brooke. But uh, it's mm-hmm. like for South Florida purposes, I thought it would have been it was really bad for us down here. It would have be been great to get her on on appropriation. Mm-hmm. But Pelosi blocked her personally. You know that, so that's the way it works. So I think AOC, who I think is a very kind of smart operator, she's picking up. Um, she knows how to pick her fights. She knows which battles to fight. I think this was probably strategic on her part, thinking, okay, now I have something to hold over Nancy Pelosi, who has been done nothing but but, but pissed on me. Sorry, for, you know, sorry mm-hmm. that word, but for lack of a better term, the last two years. Now I have this to hold over her, and she probably got the other three squad members to go with her. But I, I think very much she's the mastermind, and much like the Wasserman Schultz relationship, I think Pelosi is threatened by other um, strong women. So. Um, Wasserman Schultz, we might be to I don't know ideologically if we'd say she's to Pelosi's right or to her left, whatever she is, but she's a threat, right, internally, mm-hmm. and, and that's the same thing she saw with AOC. It's not that oh AOC is a crazy leftist. Maybe Pelosi has used that publicly to drum up support for herself, but her view of AOC is she's a threat because she's got a national following and she's a powerful woman and she's younger than me and she's also from an urban area. You know, there are these kind of similarities. Um, so, and AOC you is know, ethnic, right? In the days Pelosi started out in politics, uh, if you were Italian Catholic, which she is, you were considered kind of an ethnic minority. I know that's not the case anymore, but it was when her dad was mayor of Baltimore. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's it. Her, you nailed it, Brooke, her, 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 her um, operations are personal operations. It's, it's, it's all based on personality, which is why I was so shocked. I have to say this to someone who followed the House closely, someone who worked in the House at one point, um, when Pelosi became minority leader, because Dick Gephardt had been the minority leader, he, he resigned because he was running for president in 2004, um, and he resigned early in 2003, so he basically moved to Iowa. Um, and we had had a leadership team made up mostly of men, but they were kind of these older um, traditional working class men um, Gephardt, who started out as kind of an anti-choice but very, very left on economics, and then David Bonnier, who was the uh, second in in the house, was uh, was pro-life also, but then you know far, far left on uh, on everything else, right? These traditional New Deal liberals who had this working class background. Um, Pelosi had been this kind of urbane liberal, you know, feminist. Uh, from a from an urban area, she had made a big deal out of like human rights in China, which she was right on. Suddenly now that's not an issue that she cares about, but she did when she was a rank and file member. To me, it was like this is pretty audacious. Nancy Pelosi, who's never chaired a, a major committee, who's never really been in leadership, um, who's never who's not been a leader on these working class issues like that. Part in and Bonnier and and that group that that led the House had been, you know, very much. Um, against the Clinton balanced budget. Remember, you know, uh, the Democratic right. leadership in the House opposed the deal that Clinton made with the Republicans. They had both, Gephardt and Bonnier had both been against NAFTA, um, for example, right? That's another thing. You know, there are a number of things. Like I said, they were maybe more conservative on some social issues, but they were hard left on, on uh, economic issues. So I was stunned that Pelosi was running from Norton Beal. Then she won it easily. And it turned out what I uncovered after, which I was not aware of at the time, was that she had made all these kind of personal relationships, traded votes on committees, done all sorts of things as a rank-and-file member to ingratiate herself with people so that 10 years down the road or five years down the road when when her chance to take the leadership – away from the people who had been running the caucus. And, you know, if you look at Defard and Bonnier, there's a straight line you can make to Jim Wright and Tip O'Neill and Tom Foley and Carl Albert. You know, there was a succession of, of kind of working class Democratic men, white men, who had run the House of Representatives, who were, you know, maybe they were more traditional on social issues, but they were all New Deal Democrats when it came to economics. Uh, if Defard and Bonnier were running the House now, uh, Medicare for All would have been voted on last year. I'm just telling you that, right? That, wow,
3: wow, wow. Say that, that again. You
4: know, that's what it would be. If, if, Gephardt, if Dick Gephardt or David Bonnier were running the House still, um, and Gephardt never got to be Speaker because the Democrats never got the majority after he became minority leader, um, there would have been a vote on Medicare for All last year.
0: I can wow. guarantee
4: you that. I mean, those were the sorts of things those guys were into. Um, this is why identity is so dangerous, uh, because I think there are a lot of people who look back and tell me, oh, well, um, these guys were bad on abortion, they were bad, you know, they weren't into all these racial issues. It's like, no, but you know, on t- actual traditional working class economic issues, they're far, so far to the left to where, than where the Democrats are now. I and mean, the leadership was there. The people who led the Democrats in the House were there. Um, they'd be considered fringe members now. So Pelosi's actual rise, I, th- I mean, I'm talking about this for a specific reason. Pelosi's actual rise to be the minority leader was astonishing. And it, 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 it just indicated that one, she had developed this personal network of loyalty um, among younger members, uh, at the time younger members, and these people who were rank and file members who were not in leadership and were like ro- low ranking in committees. And that meant more to her than policy. And secondly, that the um tenor of the Democratic caucus and the Democratic message would shift from working class midwesterners. Gephardt was from St. Louis. Bonnier was from Macomb County, Michigan, outside Detroit. Uh, the 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 you know people like Tom Foley was from Spokane, Washington. Democrats hadn't won back that seat actually since he uh, since he got beat uh, And, and uh, Carl Albert was from Oklahoma. you you you're shifting from that to these very kind of suburbanite or urban Um, people who are more concerned about social issues and more comfortable with money interest. So I think that that's kind of the shift that happened in the Democratic Party as I analyzed it. She was at the forefront of it. She was it, actually. And I think the Democratic Party has kind of followed Nancy Pelosi into this sort of corporatist territory. I think she was there before they were, before the party as a whole. So
0: there's a... um... So it looks like the person who's waiting in the wings who really wants to take power right now in terms of the uh, speakership is Hakeem Jeffries, which to me is – Hakeem Jeffries to me is is – a different kind of awful than, than Nancy Pelosi. Like, like, like if you're not going to get a a vote on Medicare for all from Nancy Pelosi, what you're going to get from Hakeem Jeffries is, is way worse. What I would like to see is a Barbara Lee or, you know, somebody like, like AOC rising, rising up to take the speakership. How do you, how do you see this kind of evolving? Do you, do you have a feel for where this might go in the next Congress and the next Congress and the next
4: one. Well, I think part of it is that Democrats have to make it clear, uh, Democratic activists, that they can primary somebody who is uh, who, who, who is too, too too centrist or who may vote for the wrong person for Speaker. I, I think Pelosi's game very much was to threaten um, threaten members. Okay, so this is where we get back to the identity thing. But I, mm-hmm. I had said that they were all white males before her, um, and she was running against a white male, Steny Hoyer, who had been in leadership. Steny Hoyer had been in leadership since the late '80s, still in leadership, obviously. But um, he she ran against him from, from from minority leader, and that became the thing. It's like, well, do you want to be on the wrong side of history? Do you want to vote for another white man? <laughs> and, um, I, I again, I was I, I was unaware of all of these internal machinations and. People who had worked in the House or had been around the House like me just assumed Hoyer would, would – when David Bonner decided to run for uh, – uh, abandoned his seat and ran for governor of Michigan and lost in the primary Jennifer Granholm. Um, that left this open for Hoyer, uh, and uh, I can't remember who – uh was someone else in leadership then that uh, uh, I guess didn't run, but um, – it became this thing where she wanted, you know, do you want to be on the wrong side of history? So I think that that's going to be something that's going to be tough to, to run at Hakeem Jeffries with. You're almost going to have to have a minority for like AOC. Um, in the case of Jeffries though, I also find it kind of odd that he, you know, he's making this noise um, and he didn't do anything uh, this mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I haven't seen the actual, vote yet, but it's it's pretty clear Pelosi lost some votes today. So maybe she lost some moderate votes, I'm guessing. Uh,
0: Spanberger was one. Spanberger was one that defected. Right. Uh yeah, it it was all conservatives yeah. who, who defected. hmm
4: Right. You know, and 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 the uh um the Spanberger one is like, you know, this is the thing that 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 that, 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 that bothers me. Again, I'm not a Pelosi fan. But Spanberger I noticed because I was listening to a podcast with one of her Republican colleagues from, from Virginia. And, uh, and basically, Sandberger said, Well, I can't be associated with Nancy Pelosi in my district, which she said, and, and with, with this kind of image of Pelosi as this San Francisco leftist. Yet, no Republican who runs for the House of Representatives or the Senate has, has that optical problem with Donald Trump. So even though I don't like Pelosi, I, I think that, that reason from Sandberger is absolute bunk. Right? It's absolute mm-hmm. nonsense. She, 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 she's casting the vote because she thinks it makes her look more conservative. That's the reality. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. That's, that's the thing. And yeah, I'm sure the rest were, were moderates. This is the thing. Can – since the squad voted for Pelosi today, can you actually trust these moderates in the Democratic caucus? My experience – and I, things have changed since I've worked in, in Washington. But my experience when I was there was you couldn't. They were always the people – who, like those centrists I was talking about in the Senate, were anxious to create this kind of middle ground where they would cut deals. I'm really concerned in a, in a narrow majority House that someone like Abby Spamberger, who claims her district is very Republican, is getting more Democratic, but she, 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 she's acting like it's still the, the 1990s in Virginia, it's a solid red state. But um, someone like her is going to be the, talking to Kevin McCarthy's people r- regularly. And now she has the entree to do it, so she's voted against Pelosi. So this is the, I think, kind of the galling thing when the left gets picked on by the Democratic establishment because there are these people that, like her, she's, she's the classic example, right? Because she's also talked about she almost lost her election because of socialism. I don't think anyone cares about socialism in the 5th District of Virginia. Honestly, mm-hmm. yeah, I think it's an issue. In, I will admit, I think it's an issue in, in the Dade County seat and maybe the seats in Broward, Debbie Wasserman Schultz had the lowest uh, um, percentage ever. You know, maybe it hurt her. But I don't think it's an issue outside of, of Southern Florida. Um, I do not think it is an issue in Virginia. I do not think it is an issue in Alabama. Uh, in fact, I, I, I find it, I don't think anyone cares about it, unless it's, it's code for something else. But the things it's code for have nothing to do with actual socialism. So, um, in fact, the things it's called for are probably more represented by the Democratic establishment than by the members of the squad. But this is, this is the thing. So now you've got these moderate Democrats who clearly couldn't coalesce around having Jeffries or whoever they would get behind um, uh, uh, run against Pelosi. Now they voted against her, a couple of them. Um, and th- By the way, Brooke, this is pretty ridiculous because I have to tell you, back in the day – when uh, uh, you had Tip O'Neill as Speaker of the House, uh, and before that, Carl Albert, who we know he was from Oklahoma, was very liberal. In those states, Oklahoma wasn't quite like, like it is now. Oklahoma is a state that got radicalized by uh, the ver- virtue of all the oil money and the uh, uh, religious uh, fundamentalists like Oral Roberts that moved there and started churches there. But the 19, 1950s, 1960s, uh, Oklahoma was not that conservative a place. Uh, anyway... You had the most conservative Democrats, these people who would not cast a single vote with the Democratic Party during um, the two years of the Congress. They would vote 100% with Richard Nixon. They'd vote 100% with Reagan, vote for Tip O'Neill or Carl Albert for Speaker. So I'm actually, I'm not a Pelosi fan, as I've said, but I'm kind of appalled that this has happened now a couple of times, where there are all these <laughs> moderate Democrats who think it's some sort of uh, right of passage to vote President for Speaker, which is what I assume Stan did, right? I assume she didn't vote for McCarthy, but that they, this is, this is now becoming, it started with Heath Shuler from Tennessee or from, uh, he played for Tennessee quarterback, but from North Carolina when he decided not to vote for Pelosi after whichever election. And um, it's continued now. And um, I, I think it's pretty appalling. It shows, it, it shows a fundamental lack of loyalty that you're not seeing from the left so the left can – oppose the, the, the disagreements with the left are on policy, right? And we have these disagreements that, we're, that we have with the Democratic leadership, but you're not seeing AOC and Ilhan Omar say, you know what, I'm not going to vote for Nancy Pelosi for speaker. I'm going to effectively give my vote, vote by voting president, it effectively help Kevin McCarthy and help the Republicans, mm-hmm. the same people trying to, to overturn an election currently, right? I'm going I'm to side mm-hmm. with those people. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I'm actually really appalled because I I knew that they were sticking with Pelosi. I didn't know the vote was today. I, you and I had that conversation. I thought the vote was Tuesday because it normally is on a Tuesday. Um, but then I saw the number. I said, okay, Pelosi lost some Democratic votes, so they must it must have been um, the, the so-called centrists or actually the conservatives. You
0: know that's really interesting because in a, in in all of this there's. In the background or in the foreground, depending on on you know where kind of politics people pay attention to, there was this force the vote push, and so force the vote was to try to get uh, Medicare for all vote on the floor, and everybody you know everybody knows it's it, it, it's largely symbolic. What they're trying to do is create the same kind of push for Medicare for all that the Republicans have had. Uh, with all of the however many, it seems like a thousand votes that they had to defund the ACA. Like, the Republicans never miss right. an opportunity to tell their base that they've got their back. And the republic and the Democrats right. are exactly <laughs> the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're seeing that right
4: now. I mean, I, I will admit. Uh... I know you've had a segment on your show the last several weeks where we've – the last two months where we've heard about this attempt to overturn the election. And, you know, I I think Trump is kind of incompetent and and, and just an undisciplined keystone cop. I I didn't – I'll admit, Brooklyn. I think you and I had conversations conversation six weeks ago, and I I laughed off this thing saying, okay, yeah, he could have pulled it off if, uh, if he knew what he was doing, if he had gone and he had influenced these legislatures in advance to change the rules, which he didn't. Right, because everything is so reactive and haphazard with Trump. I did not expect the number of Republican elected officials in the U.S. Senate and in the U.S. House to, 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 to walk the plank on this thing. You're right; they never miss an opportunity to to, to play to their base. I mean, this is nope. going to be this is going to be comical on uh, on Tuesday. They're saying there might be. Uh, there could be dozens of Republicans objecting to the certification of the Electoral College. In, yeah, a election that Joe Biden won by like six, by like seven million votes nationally. I mean, come on.
0: Yep, yep. They will play to their base, and and while the perception is that that the left of the Democratic Party are the ones who who aren't loyal, you know, we're the ones who always get called, you know, whatever, you know, Russian bots or whatever. It's really the right wing of the party that, that shows no loyalty to, to, the, to the way things work, at least in, in D.C. in the House.
4: Yeah, so this is interesting. I was listening to, and I, and I hate to mention his name on this show, but I, I listened to stuff that Bill Crystal does, right? The uh, famous neocon who's now more or less a Democrat, um, very anti-Trump. He has Sean Willis on his podcast. The other day, and Sean Willis is a really acclaimed historian. And Willis talked about the thing he thinks has created the environment for Trump, and for the, and they were talking specifically about Trump and the Republicans in the House and McCarthy and, and how uh, crazy they've become, is the, the breakdown in party discipline. He said, in fact, and I found this interesting because we're talking, the media always talks about this being an incredibly partisan era, and this is the most partisan era ever, and everything is so partisan now, and it wasn't that way. What Willens was saying is it's the opposite. He was saying the breakdown in actual party structures, the parties themselves are weaker than they've ever been. Um, And you and I have talked about this privately, particularly related to Florida. The Democratic Party in Florida is a paper party, right? It exists on paper. People who are... um, uh, Democrat, FDP chair or DEC chair, mm-hmm. they, you know, they have a title. That's effectively what they have. And Willits was talking about the party party apparatus, particularly for the Democrats, more than the Republicans, but really for both parties, has collapsed. And yes, there's a partisan image in the media, and there are party caucuses in the House and Senate, but there's no enforcement mechanism anymore. Party discipline, there is no um, and. You know, this idea of, of people voting against their, their, their leader for being speaker, being the, the voting against the majority, the, the person who's the head of the Democratic caucus, in, in this case Pelosi, for speaker, was unheard of 20 years ago, 30 years ago, as I said. So, Willits was making this case, the breakdown of the party structure has allowed more freewheeling politics, which has enabled um, effectively um, non-issue-oriented charlatans. That would be Trump. So, and then he, he, he and I like this, he said, look, you, you know, people will say the far left Bernie Sanders is like the far right Trump. But in reality, it's not because Sanders' movement is very much based on on the sort of values and issues that um, political parties were based on in the past. And there would be an enforcement mechanism that would start with your local DEC." And he said that, you know, his family had been Democrats, so his experience was with the Democratic Party. But your local DEC then fed into the the state party in New Jersey where he's from. And there there was this incredible structure that held elected officials accountable, and there were party platforms that you had to uh, adhere to, which um, we we know there are party platforms still, but no one even knows what's those platforms. Nowadays that doesn't happen. So what he said is this vacuum in this vacuum comes a charlatan like Trump, a guy who's a con artist, effectively. And uh, there's no appropriate way to stop him. And power has now, because the party is so weak, the Republican Party in this case, but you know, he was talking more about the Democratic Party being weak, all of the elected officials have chosen to to to, to 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 run in line with him. So this is this is the thing. I think because there is no real force of there's no values based system the Democratic Party infrastructure has collapsed around the country we know this uh, mm-hmm. for is the prime example there is no way to kind of keep these these moderates who are deal makers right they're all effectively uh, 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 corporatists right the people in the middle are, are, are largely people who are they, they go where they, they can make the best deal. Right? People on the left and right have some degree of va- of values associated with them.
5: Trump make is not big on the right. right? We, How? Uh, Open a can and then put it in. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs>
4: the, the, Sorry about that. The, the media says Trump is on the right. Yeah, the media says Trump's on the right, but he's not. He's, he's a guy with no value system. So basically, when I was listening to this podcast with Bill Crystal, who, you know, even though I disagree with his, ideology, although I don't think he quite has that neoconservative ideology anymore. He sounds more or less more like a Democrat these days. But anyway, um, I was realizing, yeah, that's true. That's the reason why um, how you vote on issues no longer matters if you're in the Democratic caucus in in the U.S. House or the State House or the U.S. Senate. And um, there's this whole breakdown in party infrastructure where all these people can just show up and run in Democratic primaries and then end up in, in, in the House, and they can be uh, made leader if, if they become popular. It's all a personality contest. So um, it was interesting. I've been thinking about that. There has been an actual uh, collapse of the party infrastructure, and even though if you turn on CNN or, or you read the New York Times, they'll say, oh, this is a remarkably partisan era, and there's so few uh, people who, who break with their party, and it's part of their identity. That's all superficial. It's like the, the parties now are, are like these – Sports teams, effectively, you've made that analogy before. They're no longer these actual organized political parties. And um, I can't speak for the Republicans, but it's certainly true in my lifetime. The Democratic Party is, is a lot less relevant um, than it was uh, 20, 25 years ago. I mean, people have misunderstood when I've said recently, hey, I don't care what happens in the, for the Democratic Party's chairs race, but to thinking, oh, that means you're out of politics. You don't care anymore. You're just giving up on everything. It's like, no. Um, I know Peter source ran with that and said, oh, it means he's out of politics. It's like, no, it doesn't mean that at all. It means that I the party is irrelevant. Uh, and more and more people realize that. And then it was good to hear an actual historian say that, effectively, and he was using more of the Democrats as his point of reference, that from when he was young and he was an a- a- active uh, in politics before he became an academic and had come up in a Democratic family, basically the party is not, that party of the 1960s and 70s is non-existent now. You know, it's, it's all you know, oh, kind of open superficial and, and online.
0: Wow. Um, th- th- that is, it's something that, that we've been talking about for a while, that the party is uh, making itself less and less relevant. And so it's all the more confusing when when these uh, struggles Arise within within the left and the right within the party, uh, like the force the vote thing, where you know all of a sudden we all of a sudden we have to uh, switch gears and 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 we're not talking about populism politics. We're talking about the you know rules on the floor of the house or how these little votes go, and then and then you have this other thing in the background which is the party is is losing all of its relevancy it's losing its relevancy with regard to representing the voters it's losing its relevancy with regard yeah. to keeping loyalty within the house and losing its relevancy with regard to uh it, it the the way that the party runs in the states and so we only see it during the uh during the uh uh, presidential race is when we really, you know, have this. It's almost like the Olympics. You know, like every four years, we have yeah. this, this this parade of the state parties interacting with the national party to try and do something and and make sure that a leftist doesn't get elected. You know, like that's pretty much the game. It's like let's make sure that whoever's elected is to the right of, you know anyone who would be elected in 1982, essentially. Um, right, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's amazing where I mean, we're it, at. Well, effectively, I, well, I'm
4: effectively to... you can even look at
0: Joe Biden's history
4: real quickly, Brooke, and, 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 uh-huh. and understand this, because Biden in 1982, you mentioned 1982. I, I went back and did this research on Biden's voting record two years ago and was like, oh, wow, he, you know, he was a really left, left guy. And so I use that as an excuse to try and defend him now. But then I realized, I think you, I was maybe even talking to you a couple of weeks ago, I realized, you know what it is? Biden was left then because the party was left then. He's now in the middle because the party's in the middle. So effectively you can track Joe Biden's shift from being this guy who opposed military aid to the Contras and was uh, uh, sponsoring Senate, Senate resolutions to, to, to free Nelson Mandela and to challenge Reagan on apartheid to this guy now that's very comfortable with corporate, with, with insurance companies and, 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 and corporate uh, groups, uh and and others. And you could say, Oh, you know what? That actually shows the breakdown at the time. Biden was probably scared he'd get a primary or he was, you know, comfortable with the democratic activists around him. And there was a certain enforcement that was going on of, these policies in opposition to Reagan. So he was on the left. And then 30 years later, he becomes president. 40 years later, he becomes president. and He's somewhere in the, in the, in the murky middle, because that's where the party is, which shows you the part, the collapse of the party. In reality, you can just trace it through this one guy who ended up as president, who at one time was um, a prominent Senator, the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, when Robert Bork's nomination went down um, and then becomes president 30 years later and is not, effectively his ideology is not the same ideology it was then and that tells you where the what's happened to the party
0: yeah yeah and i think you're right there i think if anything joe biden is you know he's he's a a, a go with the flow kind of creature he's he, he doesn't right yeah yeah he's 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 and that's the way he's amassed his power is is by you know fitting in and finding where he can you know be Joe Biden, you know, because he's he, he's not a big. I don't consider Joe Biden to be a big thinker somebody who comes, you know, who, who is going to read every line of legislation. He he doesn't have that that wonky vibe. He, no. he he he's not into the details, but you know he 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 knows how to handle people, um and 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 glad handle people. I think that that that's how he got started and and he's matured through that.
4: Yeah, he very much played the system. This is similar to Pelosi, right? Played the system within the Senate, made friendships, uh, took very partisan stands on things, uh, did things that were popular among Democratic activists, like taking on Jesse Elms routinely on the floor and you know, calling him names. And uh could tell Elms, if people don't remember. And Jesse Elms is the worst guy, one of the worst human
3: beings in our
4: lifetime. Um, but, you know, and then also going after robert for you know i think about it you the iraq war vote is, is a case of a guy like biden who would voted against the first gulf war um and had given a really good war speech you know opposition uh and then you know, bush wins that war right so so the democrats all look bad um interestingly enough i did not realize al gore had voted for that war which surprised me and disappointed me i did when i went back and looked at biden's vote, i real i saw that gore had voted yes Biden had voted no and given a good speech. But in 2003, Biden votes for the Iraq War as does Hillary Clinton and John Kerry and John Edwards and some of these other people we, we, we would think who didn't because they weren't walking. They were just glad handing in the Senate. Our U.S. Mm-hmm. Senator, who had actually voted for the first Gulf War here in Florida, was Bob Graham, who was a great governor of the state. He actually took the time to read the intelligence. That's why, because his instinct was okay, yeah, you know, we got hit attacked on 9 11. Uh, we we need to go after these guys. Graham read the intelligence and saw it with, like there was no connection to 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 Al Qaeda, mm-hmm. and because he had actually read the intelligence, he said I'm good, not only going to vote against this war, I'm going to speak out against it, which he did. That's how he ended his political career. was 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 an anti-war guy, Grant of all people. So that reminds me that like Biden is not wonkish, but guys like Graham, who I objected to a lot of votes Bob Graham took, but he was always wonkish. He would always kind of um read intelligence and get into the, the details of policy, which might explain why guys like Bob Graham and Lawton Childs from this state, Democrats from this state, never really advanced in the Democratic Party the way less wonkish people like Bill Nelson and uh, and and Debbie Wasserman Schultz have, because you just have to play this game, and that gets us back to Pelosi, who has been a master at doing that. Pelosi has no... Like I said, when, when I worked when I up there uh, Foreign Relations Committee and, and uh, um, the chairman of the committee that I worked under was, was actually, from, or chairman, a uh, ranking member was actually from uh, her area. Tom Lantos was from the Bay Area. And um, she was, her big thing was China. Well, uh, I think because she represented San Francisco and the human rights violations and she was against most favored nation, most, most favored nation status. She had voted against NAFTA, uh, etc. Once she became a leader, She effectively divorced herself from all her previous policy positions and everything has been about personality and IOUs, et cetera, which is why, again, getting back to this thing about people being angry with with, with AOC today, I think AOC now, after two years in the House and Pelosi going after her for two years, understands the kind of character Pelosi is and realizes she can probably win some favor with Pelosi and then Mm -hmm. be able to... To pick that next fight which is probably on medicare for all and a floor vote coming up potentially by by positioning herself strategically on this so i think what aoc did was smart that's my that's my personal take on it
0: well kardik i've got to run and and uh, pick up uh, uh, uh the next caller but i want to thank you so much for explaining this and kind of cracking open this code because I I don't think that it's well understood and you have I I learned a lot just just listening to you tonight I had no idea um uh, that, that Nancy Pelosi took down Steny Hoyer I mean I knew it was like it's there in my memory but it wasn't it's not something that I that I have you know have top of mind and that's pretty astounding that kind of changes the the way I look at things but let's pick this up again real soon because you know this is not going away if you have if you've had a look at Twitter in the last few minutes like there's a a, a hashtag trending uh, about the fraud squad and the squadist (laughs) quo so it's not going away anytime soon
4: Great. So thank you, Brooke, and and I wish all your listeners a Happy New Year.
0: Oh, thank you. You too. All right, you guys. So I want to real quick uh, bring on uh, our uh, anonymous caller who checks in from time to time, and we are going to uh, pull apart some of this uh, stuff that happened today with the the, uh, Bean Dad. So hold on. So, hey, caller, anonymous caller. Hey, happy Um, new year. Happy new year. Bean Dad, we had a big conversation about this (laughs) earlier today, and it is the most insane thing I've ever (laughs) seen happen on social media, not just for (laughs) the original post, but for how every single person that that, that I interacted with who had seen it was traumatized. Was was having an emotional flashback to bad parenting. Oh my god! Like like, like we were we were in, in DM groups just just you know like having group therapy for about an hour. It was or longer. It was remarkable. So tell us, tell us, tell us about this. This John Roderick did a giant tweet storm about. Uh, a a teachable moment with his daughter. Do you remember how, how any of this goes? I think his first one was my daughter. This guy comes on.
6: Can you hear me? Can you hear me?
0: Yeah. yeah.
6: Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry. I I didn't mean to speak over you. So yeah. So this uh, gentleman comes on and it's not anyone I've ever interacted with on Twitter. He's got a big account, did 45,000 or something like that. And he's uh, a podcaster, apparently of some note or involves a lot of podcasters. I didn't know all that, but, uh, uh, you or somebody showed me, uh, he laid out like this 30-tweet thread about uh, his Dad. nine-year-old daughter telling him, yeah, and she she tells him he's hungry, tell, tells him she's hungry, and she would like some beans, like the kind of beans in a can that you make into baked beans, and uh, he says, go ahead and make them yourself, and she says, okay, how, and he's like, but I said, uh, well, first you go get a, you know, you go open the can. And she's like, how do I do that? And he hands her a can opener. And it goes from there. Whether he he lays out in like 20-something tweets how he let this nine-year-old girl struggle for six hours, according to him, with a can opener.
3: And mm-hmm. he's giving While all this, He's he working
6: on a jigsaw puzzle. Jigsaw puzzle. Yes. Yes.
3: <laughs> so oh, my working, God. What he a detail.
6: <laughs> he's working on a jigsaw puzzle. And he's giving this, his daughter all this sort of cryptic, you know, kung fu master advice about, like, examine the tool. It, it has no superfluous function, but it is made to be pleasing. Determine how it is to be employed uh, to uh, interact with the can. And, like, he's some kind of, like, super tough love, survival guide, engineer. I don't know. It, was, it just came across that this poor nine-year-old kid wanted some beans, and he wouldn't show her how to use a can opener.
3: <laughs> yeah, it's the big bean dojo. <laughs> yeah, like, like, like uh, he yeah was it was a bean dojo. Right, yeah.
6: <laughs> right, right, right. Like she needed to like climb a mountain with a goat on her shoulders before he was going like, to break the secret open on the, how to do the can opener. And then according to some people, the way he described to use the can opener wasn't even necessarily correct. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> um, it It triggered a lot of people I think who had you know uh you know parenting experiences gone wrong where you know parents had left a a kid without assistance maybe with the best intentions and I assume that of this guy that he was you know trying to teach his in his way he thought he was trying to teach his daughter a lesson, although frankly he came off a little like he was flexing you know some kind of intellectual you know tough guyness of himself or something and it just it made a lot of people, you know, a lot of people very sincerely chimed in and said, God, I, you know, I had a parent who left me hanging, and it traumatized me, and, you know, this is probably not a good idea. Why don't you show the kid how to use a can opener? I saw a doctor chime in and say, you know, there's a, there's a specific way a, a surgeons talk about learning things. I have a relative who's a surgeon, um, does some surgery, and I think they say you, you watch it once or you watch it twice and then you try it once under supervision. And that's how you learn, you know, so they, but the Mm -hmm. first thing is somebody demonstrates clearly to you how to do the task, uh, maybe more than once. Then you try it on your own with a mentor, you know, watching over you And, and then assuming all that goes well, I guess you're ready to fly on your own. And that kind of thing makes sense to me. Uh, but this guy really, pushed a lot of people's buttons and I, I, I think his account may have left Twitter and I wasn't necessarily pulling it for that or like, anything, but
0: it looks like he's shut down and, and, and there's a couple of different ways you can shut down. You can delete your account or you can go private, you know, like just private it. Um, yeah. There, right. There's also, the locking suitcase. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. There's, there, there's another way to shut down. So, so there's the, the locking suitcase, which a lot of people do when they're like, uh, um, you know, just taking a break from Twitter there under is fire a, or
6: something or yeah, under fire.
0: there is uh, uh, deleting your account, which which is permanent and you can't undo. And then there is a a third option which is uh, suspending your account where you've got thirty days to turn it back on. If you don't turn it back on in thirty days, then, then it's gone. But you, but you, you can turn your your account off so that nobody can find it for a, a period of time, which is probably okay. what he's done. I doubt that he's completely nuked his account because he had a lot of followers, and so, so what I want to get at here is Roderick was he's he's a minor meteor a minor meteor figure. Media figure. Say that fast. Uh, Yeah, I can't even say it slow. Uh, So he's got a podcast, (laughs) and he seems to run in a circle with like Dave Anthony and some comedians. His his podcast is a little like Dave Anthony's podcast, like The Dollop is a history podcast, but it's it's kind of this like general interest thing. And so this thing that Roderick did was called like the Omnibus or something, and it's kind of a general weird facts thing. And so I think he I think he kind of trades on having a certain kind of humor which people started yeah. searching his Timeline it started searching his account and found all of this edge lord just stuff you listen people do not tweet out you know references to n using, using the n word <laughs> using the f word using the r word you know making fun of Jewish people, do not do that I mean like ever and so this guy's like in his fifties and 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 he's he's been trying to be an edge lord for for God knows how many years, and people were digging up like like all of these these terrible tweets where he's like, "I'm a student of hitler and and you know where he was I, me they weren't they it, weren't literal yeah they weren't
6: but literal at the same time it was terrible as an attempt to joke, and it was a, oh. so yeah, he said things like he responded to someone that the Fourth Amendment, which is protection against unlawful search and seizure, has been diluted by activist Jew judges who defend mud people, um, you know, which is just sounds like the most racist thing in the world. But you can tell, I guess, in context that if you were to ask him, he would say he was being ironic, he was being facetious. I mean, the rest of his account is certainly not about being a white supremacist or anything like that. But but it, it raised a point between you and I when we were discussing it, which is this is not a kind of edge lording that you should be doing, you know. And it, no. it it becomes impossible at a certain point to discern the difference between someone who is a literal monster and someone who thinks that they are entitled to make really harsh, edgy jokes that fly in the face of all decency. And then if you call them on it to say, "Ha ha, I'm just joking," are you? I mean, this whole this whole right movement with the Pepe the Frog thing was sort of centered around. Mm-hmm. making horrendous-sounding comments, you know, about, you know, the Holocaust and, you know, the worst things in the world, racism, and and then pulling back if anyone called them on it and said, huh, huh, we're just joking. But the whole point was to say – to see how far they could go and how much they could say, uh, you know, falling back on, it's all just a joke, can't you take a joke? And well, I, I think when people – yeah, yeah,
0: functionally that's not no longer a joke. And I and I've told this story a bunch. I used to hang out with a bunch of guys, and they it, we, we lived in East Tennessee, and and, and they would uh, you know, talk like rednecks. Now, like none of us naturally talk like rednecks, but they would, you know, like mocking they, they,
6: the accent and stuff, and mocking yeah. the
0: accent, mm-hmm. and they did it so often so often that there was functionally <laughs> no difference between hanging out with them and hanging out with a bunch of rednecks, except maybe they drove different kinds of cars or, you know, had different taste in music uh, or beer, right. but it was just, it was maddening. was like the same and they
6: it was, the it same was joke functionally as the same a racist would or whatever. And,
0: and, and, and it the goes back to primitive
6: example. No, go yeah, ahead. I want to
3: hear.
0: Yeah, I want to I want to hear the primitive example, but but what it does to the people around you is you are a wash in 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 that vibe. So functionally, right. there's no difference. You're
6: swimming in it. You're mm-hmm. swimming in the. I'm I'm just joking. Anti-Semitism and the I'm just joking yep. misogyny, and it's a kind of entitled thing that a certain kind of like I I, I hate to throw around like white people. I I am one. But um, PJ O'Rourke, if you ever read him, he writes for yeah. Car and Driver, and he's been around a long time. It's sort of like, oh, yeah. if you remember, National Lampoon, and also the way like Chevy Chase used to joke around before he kind of got canceled. It's this it's this entitled white guy thing where we can put on blackface, and we can say the N-word, and we're just being harsh and edgy, but they're kind of daring you to call them on it. You know, they're kind of saying, I, I'm allowed. I can do mm-hmm. this. And like you said, If you're, you know, if your timeline has 40 uses of the N word and the the F word about gay people and, you know, allusions to anti-Semitism, you know, if it's coming up over and over and over again, just as you said, functionally, what's the difference? You're swimming in it. And just because you're sort of smirking and saying, well, I don't mean it that way, um, you know, if someone calls you on it,
0: uh, is is a problem. Yeah, and PG overwork is is the perfect uh, comparison here because if you've ever seen a panel with uh, like he used to go on Bill Maher's show and he used to go on some he used to be on uh, wait wait don't tell me like one of the wait MPRs. wait
6: right all the time
0: and it was it was horrendous like he wasn't funny like you you just the uh, it was just like uh, like every time it was uh, I don't know who wanted to hear that it was and always I think kind of that, that
6: conservative but, snark. Yeah, Mm and they lean into the political incorrectness of it um, with the idea that, you know, if you if you ever call me, well, then you're just not getting the joke. Uh, But but at the same time, we get to talk that way.
0: So thank you so much, Anonymous Caller, for helping us. Uh, understand and kind of wrap our brains around being dad a little bit tonight. And I, and I hope people will, um, you know, check this out because people are going to be writing about it. This is a cultural thing and right. I'm gonna let you go and bring Janine on. I'm going to have to go. And, uh, okay. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Okay. Thank you. All right, folks, hold on. We got Janine Moloff right here. There we go. Hey, Janine. Okay. Hey, Brooke.
5: It's been kind of a, I'm going to say bad word, clusterfuck today. but I I'm hear yes. I'll be able to salvage some of this report together. Um, lost my internet and part of my electric today, so it's been fun. Alrighty, righty. So what I'm talking about today is the fact that, you know, we hear on the mainstream media, we've heard for the last couple of weeks that the COVID vaccine is coming, you know, by spring, we'll have maybe half the population inoculated. And I noticed even today on Face the Nation, Meet the Press, the mainstream reporters, Arizona reporters, even Margaret Brennan finally uh, uh, basically uh, talked, you know, confronted the doctor in charge and said, look, you know, you guys are way behind on vaccine distribution, you know. What's the deal? So, what I did was I saw this article, and it was in Common Dreams actually. And this is a truly terrifying statement. Sorry to hear the paper rep link ahead. Write stuff down. Um, Common Dreams reported this four days ago. It was written by Jake Johnson, and the headline was: "This is warp speed. At current pace, U.S. will take 10 years." to adequately vaccinate the public against COVID-19 analysis warns 10 years. And the analysis that Jake Johnson was referring to was done by NBC news. And that was another uh, companion piece by Joe Murphy and Corey DeMasco. And when you think about this, I'm going to go over these as quickly as I possibly can. And if you don't mind kind of helping me watch my time and hopefully I won't disconnect you by mistake. So 10 years. And this was actually buffeted up by another report I saw today. This was actually from back in November. Uh, NBC News reported that they published an op-ed and it was written by Olivia Troy, who was a former COVID task force advisor for Vice President Pence. And she wrote it and she titled it COVID vaccine distribution is undermined by Trump playing politics with transfer of power. And she has quite a resume in actuality. And here's hoping I don't disconnect you. Mm -hmm. I was able to get to my email on my phone. So this has been just a little, I had to get a little creative here because there's too many facts for me to remember it all. So with COVID vaccine distribution. Okay. um, Give me a second here. All right. So, This was an opinion piece written by Olivia Troy, and um, she is accusing the Trump administration of of undermining quite a few things, but especially the vaccine rollout because he's playing politics and and stalling the transfer of power to the Biden administration. And uh, so basically what she's, you know, she's quoted as saying, quote, I saw firsthand how politics dominated the task force's work, how uh, the president's overriding concern for the economy and his reelection rather than the welfare of the American people cost lives. And this was a woman. She is a homeland security professional, long-time duration. She was a, she was formerly, formerly worked for the George W. Bush administration. So you can't call her a liberal snowflake by any stretch of the imagination. So she's basically saying, you know, that the timely, safe, and equitable, notice equitable, distribution of coronavirus vaccines, quote, to the American people will be an undertaking akin to landing a spacecraft on an asteroid. And I don't think this woman's prone to exaggeration normally. Mm -hmm. And the delay is costing lives. So she went on in this op-ed and she put the blame, first of all, on Emily Murphy, who is the head of the GSA, or the General Services Administration, because Emily Murphy was the Trump loyalist that refused to sign paperwork that would would authorize the transition and authorize funds and access to government records for the incoming Biden administration. And she pointed out that this doesn't just violate norms that were established by her former boss, George W. Bush, as well as the Obama administration. She also pointed out that this violates the law. The Presidential Transition Act, quote, requires that the outgoing administration provide resources to the incoming administration. Now a little bit about Emily Murphy. Emily Murphy, who's head of the GSA, the way mainstream media represented her, you thought she was just basically, you know, a... a, a regular employee, paper shuffler, Emily Murphy is a licensed attorney. She knows full well what the law is, and she can and needs to be held accountable. So, and and Troya goes on to, to explain how the intention of the Presidential Transition Act was to keep the country from being weakened in the face of any huge challenge, like a pandemic, when when administrations are changing. That's all. And to quote this woman again, uh, Olivia Troy, who wrote the op-ed, the Trump administration through Murphy is saying to America, you didn't vote for us, so why should we do anything for you? You should have known that the basic functioning of the government would grind to a halt if the president didn't get his way, end quote. And then Troya writes, I'm not surprised. She goes on to explain how she was a Homeland Security Advisor to Vice President Pence, I have to take a sip of water here, and is lead advisor and staffer on the White House Coronavirus Task Force. She was involved in the White House's internal discussions on the pandemic, as well as uh, the effort to bring a massive inoculation program. She said that while she was there, she organized and participated in every single meeting of the Coronavirus Task Force until she left uh, the administration entirely in August. And to quote from her op-ed again, quote, I saw firsthand how politics dominated the task force's work. how uh, The president's overriding concern for the economy and his reelection rather than the welfare of the American people cost lives. When we briefed the president and vice president on the coronavirus's ravaging effects on Hispanic and black communities, their response was only to position minority staffers on the task force more prominently for photo ops.
3: Hmm.
5: So more con artist stuff. And the fact is, she said, she admitted it is a big logistical effort. In fact, to quote her, she said, quote, it's a logistical effort big enough to make even Amazon blush. So this is huge. And basically, she went on to say, quote, whatever plans the Trump administration... Might have to execute this Herculean challenge. Its official policy is not to share them, mm. excuse me, with the Biden team until they absolutely have to end quote mm. okay. So this woman went on the record, she didn't miss any words, and basically she went on to say that even a short uh, you know short um, delay. Will cost lives, no doubt about it. And, you know, the fact is, she warned Americans that, quote, they should not slip into complacency because Trump will still be in office for more than two months. For his entire presidency, he has made an enemy out of anyone who dared to tell him what he didn't want to hear. Now that includes the American people, end quote. So, you know, this woman and her credentials are really impressive. She is. A, she went on the record, uh, In she wrote this herself, she is a career national security professional and former Homeland Security Counterterrorism and COVID Task Force Advisor to Vice President Mike Pence. So that's number one. If that doesn't make you mad, wait, I have more. Seriously, we won't get to all of it tonight, and I know that. Now, we did have the Trump COVID vaccines are you know who basically said oh we should be able to immunize nearly a third of the population by the you know end of February we know that's not happening so let's go to the common dreams piece and written by Jake Johnson this is the piece that bases what they say on an analysis done by NBC news and it basically says it's ironic they call it operation warp speed but and i'm quoting at the current pace the U.S. will take 10 years to adequately vaccinate the public against COVID-19, end quote. Okay, and Jake, it goes on to say, quote, we should have been prepared to start inoculating millions of people the day a vaccine was approved. This is a massive policy failure, end quote. Now, the analysis, as I said before, was released by NBC News. You may have got another glass of drink of water here. And... Uh, <clears throat> To meet, you know, basically, to meet the Trump administration's stated goal of vaccinating approximately 80% of the population by late June of 2021, the NBC, NBC uh, study said, quote, To meet that goal, a little more than 3 million people would have to get the shots each day. But so far, only about 2 million people, most of them frontline healthcare workers and some nursing home residents, have gotten their first shots of the 11.5 million doses that were delivered in the last two weeks. Now, you have to understand something. We have hundreds of millions of people in this country. We need more than 11 million doses of vaccine. Now, um, the head of the – okay, let me move ahead here. So they've been criticized by several people. Um, Dean Baker, who is the co-director of the Center for Economic and Policy Research – um, basically asked in a blog post um, and he, he was re- referencing a small number of people in the U.S. who have received shots since the FDA authorized the Pfizer and Moder- Moderna vaccines for emergency use. And so Dean Baker was quoted as saying, quote, we should have had major warehouses located around the country so that as soon as the FDA greenlighted a vaccine, it could quickly be delivered to hospitals and clinics in every corner of the country. We should have been prepared to start inoculating millions of people the day a vaccine was approved. This is a massive policy failure, end quote. Then we have Ashish Jha, I'm probably pronouncing this wrong, who is a physician and dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, who also agreed with Baker's criticism. And Dr. Jha said, quote, the worst part is no real planning for, on what happens when vaccines arrive in states. No plan, no money, just hope that states will figure this out. State health departments are trying to stand stand up a vaccination infrastructure. Congress had given them no money. States are out of money, so many are passing it on to hospitals, nursing homes. She went on to add, quote, public health has always been a state-federal partnership. States are stretched, stretched, feds are supposed to help, but the same folks who blame states for the testing mess now now ready to blame states for the vaccine slowdown. They are again setting states up to fail. End quote. And uh, this goes on. Leanna Wen, <coughs> excuse me, my voice is getting better, but it still takes time. Leanna Wen, who is a, a visiting professor of health policy and management at the George Washington University's Milken School of Public Health. Wrote a column for the Washington Post <coughs> criticizing the speed of vaccinations should, quote, set off alarms. To quote um, Leanna Wen, <coughs> excuse me, quote, remember the first group of vaccinations was supposed to be the easiest. It's hospitals and nursing homes inoculating their own workers and residents. If we can't get this right, it doesn't bode well for the rest of the country. So Wen also took the Trump administration to task because Trump kept shifting the goalposts whenever they they basically not only failed, but, you know, basically reneged on what they said they were going to do. Again, to quote Wen, when states learned they received fewer doses than they had been told, the administration said its end-of-the-year goal was not for vaccination, but vaccine distribution. It also have the number of doses that would be available to people from forty million to twenty million. Perhaps they hope no one would notice that their initial pledge was to vaccinate twenty million people, which is forty million doses, or that President Trump had at one point vowed to have one hundred million doses by the end of the year. End quote. And you can see the the, the trickery and deceit on the part of the Trump administration because when they responded to, to criticism they said well the goal for the end of the year wasn't for vaccinations the vaccine distribution well, what good is it to distribute the vaccines and have them sit in storage if you're not going to actually put them in arms there's no point in it so <clears throat> so basically when leanna when went on to say quote instead of mudding the waters the federal government near, needs to take three urgent steps First, set up a real-time public dashboard to track vaccine distribution. That makes good sense. Secondly, publicize the plan for how vaccination will scale up so dramatically. Third, acknowledge the challenges and end the defensiveness. The public will understand if initial goals need to be revised, but there must be willingness to learn from the steps and immediately course correct, end quote. And this is very true. So now... We know that this is at a crawl. And I won't have time tonight to get to too much of this. I'm just going to touch upon it. Dean Baker hit the nail on the head. He just did. I just saw this tonight, actually. And in a column he wrote on the CEPR, uh website, and he wrote this back in October, it's titled Waiting for a Vaccine, Killing for Inequality. And he talks about how the Trump administration sought patent monopoly research as opposed to open-source collaborative research. Now, this is very, a very important and critical point. When you have patent... I'm not going to get into it in depth. I'm going to be talking about that next week. Um, when you talk about patent monopoly research, what you're saying is that, for instance, in Moderna's case, Dean Baker um, found that Moderna had basically been allowed to use research that the U.S. taxpayer paid for. We've talked about this before in our Not Dying for Wall Street series. And um, in addition to that, Moderna got hundreds of millions of dollars in direct payment on top of that. So Moderna got paid twice. And Baker also points out the fact that when companies like Pfizer or Moderna get paid, for them to actually push out the vaccine. They've already been paid. They're not in any big hurry, no matter what they say. Whereas if they had been paid upon receipt of the vaccine, they would have been speeding up. It's kind of like when you, well, in my instance, if I pay you know, an electrician to come out here and he says, well, I need payment up front first and I'll go and get some tools and I'll come back. We've all seen that gone before. Sometimes they come back and they want more money, and sometimes they don't. But there's, it's not dealing in good faith. Now, when you're talking about open source collaborative research, that's the kind, like through the World Health Organization, that's the kind where everyone benefits. You know, we can go back to, again, in our Not Dying for Wall Street series, which this is a continuation of. We talked about how PPE was at such a, such a really a created shortage. We talk about how we had to wait for a diagnostic test, except that really wasn't true. The Trump administration waited for a corporate-produced diagnostic test. The fact is the World Health Organization had a formula and offered it free to every country, including the U.S., to create a COVID-19 diagnostic test that was perfectly good, that was very reliable and valid, and the Trump administration turned it down. This is, these delays and these engineered incompetence, this is all about money. This is all about delays. There is no question here. And and Dean Baker in this article really lays it on the line. He does. And he is a very experienced economist. In fact, he pointed out that when he mentioned the difference in payment structure between a pet not only a patent monopoly research, but also the difference between patent monopoly research and open source collaborative research, he pointed out that even progressive giants such as AOC and Bernie and uh, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris, all of them, none of them spoke up about this. There's been dead silence. Dead silence. And I'd like to know why. Because they certainly have more access to this information than I do. If I can find this information online in, say, an hour, there is no excuse for U.S. Senators or Congresspersons that claim to be progressive and have entire staff working for them, there's no reason why they couldn't find it either. And, and those that have been in office for a while, they know that open source um, collaborative research is something that has been done many times before. It is and it, it it works. We need to work with the world, and Big Pharma is going to have to get over it. So I apologize for the <laughs> the kind of loose configuration of this report, because I had to piece it together <laughs> literally an hour before the show so and Brooke, you know that, so that's my report, and we're going to continue this next week, and we're really going to be talking a lot about what uh, dean baker is talking about in terms of the difference in research structures and payment structures and once again this open source collaborative research model can benefit everybody rich and poor nations alike and there is no reason and and we're not going to hold anybody as some sort of sacred cow i'm i'm i love bernie but guess what he remains silent on this one i'm gonna hold him accountable because that's what good journalism is supposed to do. We're supposed to speak truth to power and hold them accountable, even the ones that we happen to like. So, tune in for next week. This is a continuation of our Not Dying for Wall Street series, and that's my report.
0: You there? Here we go. I didn't can hear you hear me? <laughs> yes, yeah. now I can. That's because I was good and I didn't. Um, yeah, great report. I mean, just an excellent report. And um, for those who don't know, Janine's power went out and lost her notes, and so she was just winging it. But I think it was great. It was loose and it was <laughs> spot on. So thank you so much. And we will pick up. And I love this. I love this, uh, I, I, I love this uh, topic. So thank you so much this for bringing. Is, we're continuing it my, not
5: dying for Wall Street. We're going to hold them accountable.
0: Excellent. We will see you again next week. And don't forget to tune in to the Environmental Justice Report on Thursdays at 8 o'clock. And for uh, everyone else, please, please um, stay safe. Try not to get COVID in between now and, uh, and the, before a vaccine gets to you. And um, we'll see you again next week. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.